Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Got people from all walks of life, you know, from from the handwriting experts to former nurses or former detectives, your everyday office worker that likes to do this after work. People bring all different kinds of expertise to the table. They seem to work well together and they're able to piece together bits of evidence, which which is incredible, really. I'm Nicola Tallent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Who says you can't solve crime in your spare time? Elderly armchair detectives with a penchant for puzzles are the protagonists of Richard Osmond's chart-topping Thursday Murder Club novellas. But far from the pages of his perfect prose, there are real-life groups that conduct amateur investigations into gritty crimes in the pursuit of finding the truth. Today I'm talking to Nicholas Stowe, author of The Real Life Murder Clubs, about the people who have helped families to get justice for their loved ones. She tells me about the mother who caught her daughter's killer, the two citizen investigators who heisted dozens of files from a police station to help them track down the Golden State killer, and what happens when online sleuthing goes wrong. I'm Claude Amini and this is Crime World, a podcast from Sunderworld.com. a little bit about where your inspiration for the book came from. Yeah, well, it was actually John Blake at Adlib Publishers who I've done a few books with that he came to me with the idea. So I can't take credit for the idea myself. Um, and the sort of the basis of the idea was obviously Richard Osman's The Thursday Murder Club. But let's look at the real life armchair sleuths, you know, because there seems to be quite a rise in, mm. um, you know, amateur detectives, um, particularly in America. Hence, a lot of the stories are... American. It doesn't seem such a big thing in the UK. I found it hard to find interviewees here. Um, so yeah, I thought it was a brilliant idea um, and basically set about finding people to interview, people that actually spend like, you know, 15 plus hours a day, day and night on the internet, you know, checking various websites and, you know, you know, what trying to crack these cases themselves, which, you know, sometimes is... Um, is, is very successful and other times, as you'll see from the book, can be very damaging um, mm. for certain people um, when wrong accusations are made. So it needs to be like, as Trisha um, Griffiths um, has successfully done with web sleuths, you know, it needs to be well moderated and make sure the rules are followed and no names. Mm. And so, yeah, so it's interesting to see how they worked and how they you know, as a journalist myself who, you know, worked on investigations, it was I found it fascinating the, the lengths they went to. Because you kind of see like the concept of Richard Dodsman's book. You're like, wow, that's so cool. I wish I could do something like that. I think it's a huge thing to do with the availability of um, evidence and the availability of um, information, especially here in the UK, whereas in America, they just give you everything. You can find it online. But I think the opening paragraph of the book kind of really 
brings home the idea that this is actually something people do. Like, you you know, if you've read the Thursday Murder Club and the various different, you know, um, spin-offs of that, the, the um, sequels, you know, you think this would be a fun thing to do. But I think the open paragraph of the book where you say, like, have you ever come home from work and thought, I'll scare the internet to see if I can identify a decayed head found in a bucket, work through the night drawing digital pictures from autopsy photographs, or has it ever come... A, a, occurred to you to compare lists of unidentified citizens with those of missing people if not then welcome to the surprising world of citizen sleuths and that really brings it home that this is something that that actually happens and it's not just you know strangers doing it one of the first I think one of the you know the first stories in your book is of a mother who goes and you you know who goes down this rabbit hole to try and get justice for her daughter so can you tell us a little bit about Belinda and her daughter, Crystal Theobald. Yeah, so Belinda, um, her daughter was a trainee to be a nurse, Crystal. Um, and it all started when one evening they lived in uh, Riverside in, in California. And one evening, it, Crystal wanted to get some cigarettes from the 7-Eleven. So they headed out, decided to take two cars. Um, Belinda was in a Honda Civic, I believe. <laughs> um, she went at first and then um, Crystal followed with her brother and friend. Yeah, so um, so they, they've, they're heading out to the 7-Eleven and as they've got to the end of the street, a SUV, like Ford Ex- Expedition, um, turns into the corner. Um, Belinda had to swerve to avoid it um, and then uh, this guy has jumped out She's parked up and she's facing the curb where this guy gets out and stands under a streetlight and she's wondering what's going on. Um, she could just about see at the corner of her eye her daughter in, in the other car. Um, and the guy pulls a handgun from his, from his waist. So she ducks down in the car and the next thing she hears is this almighty explosion of glass, uh, about four or five bullets um, shots in the night. So she, she then... Um, turns and the the crystal's car comes round and disappears up the road so she tries to follow them um but she loses them um so she doesn't know what's happened to her daughter she doesn't know that their car was the one hit she just heard the explosion um and unfortunately crystal was shot in the head um one also um was shot in the stomach mm-hmm. um, there's cctv footage showing um her brother Justin Cradler outside a supermarket where they went to. Um, she's bleeding. So she's rushed to hospital. And meanwhile, Belinda goes home and the police are there. And her um, husband says that, you know, she's been taken to hospital. And she dashes out into the car. You know, I've, I've got to get to my baby girl, she kept saying. And it was so, mm-hmm. when I, you know, you could really see the emotion when I, when I spoke to her and the determination you know, eventually to get justice for, for Crystal. So she went to the hospital. She drove through the police tape and everything. Nothing was stopping her. And when she got to the hospital, which was guarded by police, um, her daughter's on life support. Um, and eventually she had to make that awful decision that no mother should have to make. Um, that her brain had died. There was nothing else they could do. And she had to make the decision to turn the machine off. So Crystal... Died. In, meanwhile, Belinda had a heart attack. Um, she was rushed into like down to surgery herself, um, and they said she had a mild heart attack. Um, and yeah, when she came back, that's when she had to turn the say turn the machine off. Um, and basically, Crystal died in her arms in hospital. And she held her and said, um, "I'm, I'm going to get the people who did this to you. I'm going to get them, baby girl." Was a so from then on she. Her son, Nicholas, had told her, um, had done some inquiries himself and found out that it was a, he believed the, the shooter was part of the 5150 gang, which terrorised the neighbourhood, had been, uh, um, you know, responsible for shootings, assaults in the area for about three years before this happened. Um, his theory was that it was... Um, they had some names. Um, one was William Sotelo, known as Jokes. And the other one is, <laughs> yeah, Julio Heredia. Um, so he, they had these names already. And um, it, 
Heredio was looking for a rival for the MD gang who drove a Honda Civic as well. So it's been a case of misidentification. They, you know, obviously Crystal, nothing to do with gangs or anything like mm. that. So, um, so Belinda then thinking that the police investigation was happening too slow, um, set about trying to track down the daughter's killers. Um, mm. So she and her niece, Jamie, set up a, those were the days of MySpace, as you'll know from the book, and um, they set up a, a fake profile for a girl. Um, her name was Rachel. They put her in a super, super girl T-shirt and put this like image up and set about trying to befriend as many 5150 gang members as possible. So she really went in there straight into the community of who she believed was the perpetrator and went straight in there looking for for them to find them. And, and what was her purpose, I guess? What was the idea of her going in there and doing that? Was Did she need more intel or what was the kind of the thinking behind it? I think it was purely she she wanted justice for Crystal. She wanted to find the, the people who did this, you know, to her daughter. Um, and she swore as well um, over her daughter's coffin last time you know, she said goodbye to her that, you know, I'm going to get them, I will get them. Mm-hmm. She was determined, you know. Um, yeah, and, and I do think she felt that um, what was happening in terms of the investigation wasn't progressing at, this, at the rate she wanted it to. Mm-hmm. And to me, she said, I, you know, I, when I started this, I thought I'd have it done and dusted in a month. And of course, it went on for you know, over a decade. So, um, so, yeah, she was determined. And then after a while, she felt they did manage to befriend quite a few members, including um, Sotelo. Um, but after a while, she felt this isn't doing much. So she set up a new uh, MySpace profile. Jamie, by that point, she was quite young, you know, um, was missing her cousin and it, it got a bit too much. So she sort of backed down and um, Belinda mm. took over and she used Crystal's picture and set up a new pro- profile as Angel. Interesting. And did they notice it was Crystal? No, that was the thing. So she, yeah, she set it up as Angel and um, she said... Yeah, she, she she wanted everyone to fall in love with Angel. She wanted all these gang members to fall in love with her. And I think she said, I'm going to be your darkest, best-kept secret, was what she said. Um, she had all these, like, glittering hearts and and everything and, and sort of made her as a real sort of... She's a single girl and attractive. And she began to befriend uh, William Jokes Sotelo. Mm-hmm. Um, and that... Worked quite well. So, but she, Belinda said that, oh, my mum was in prison for cooking meth and hoping that he would open up about drugs and prison life and everything. And it had the adverse effect. He, he sort of seemed to really be falling for her. You know, I'm here for you. How can I help you? And so this went on. And he uh, wanted to take her to a, to a party, I believe. Um, and she, she said yes. And, decided that she would back out at the last minute. Actually, this is when Jamie was still involved. Um, and they managed to realise it was him driving the SUV on the night Crystal was shot because he said that, um, she said, I don't have a ride to get there, you know. And he said, oh, I'll pick you up. And she said, what car do I look for? And he said, a white Ford Expedition. So they're kind of putting two and two together here. Mm, very cleverly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was clever what they did. And then, of course, like Belinda obviously carried on as Angel. Um, and she got to a point where she, you know, so frustrated and consumed with grief that she felt she wasn't getting very far. Um, it was all, you know, banter back and forth with these gang members and with, with um, Sotelo that she, in the end, she began to feel like she wanted to, you know, the, the shift went from trying to find the killers to wanting to kill them herself. And mm. she had done, and she set up an um, a end of world party for the 6th of June, 2006. Um, and she invited all these gang members. It was a remote location um, out in the mountains. Uh, she said she was going to go out with her gun, like lure them all there and shoot them. Wow. Uh, husband's Ben 
talked her out of this thankfully you know she said she yeah. was not in a good place she was depressed she was you know just overwhelmed really mm-hmm. um and then she she went to the um detective rick wheeler and she in the end she said no you know this is what i've been doing you take it on from there um, brilliant yeah and they eventually so, sorry go on <laughs> so what happened then so she invites them all to this party She's getting kind of really frustrated and upset. She's at a, she's probably at a boiling point here. What happens next? Yeah, so a, a, a year passed with, with no news on Sotelo because he'd originally been pulled in for questioning. He denied being there on the night and framed um, and said that it was his, his friend who, who was the gunman. Um, they didn't have enough evidence to keep him, so he was let go. Um, so a year went on and um, two other gang members um, were identified. William, the brothers called William Emmanuel Lemus. Um, they, for immunity, they said that Julio Heredia fired the gun. So um, they then, the detective Wheeler then was able to arrest Heredia as the, um, as the gunman who shot Crystal. So he... Um, he went to trial in 2011 um, and they were they had the death penalty like was on the table for him and at first mm-hmm. it was all for this and then she changed her mind and said you know like let him suffer in jail and he got life in jail meanwhile um Saleto went on the run to mexico and then belinda managed to track him down basically via a person she met online. So she went back to the online sleuthing again, met this girl because she found his, um, he'd been using Crystal's picture on her Facebook mm-hmm. page under a different name. So yeah, it's all quite convoluted. And, and before, uh, after she snapped, um, she actually confronted Celesto going back to mm-hmm. that time, um, which was the, the whole point of the chapter. And she said, um, in the end, she said to him like, why did you kill me? I'm Crystal. Don't you know who I am? And so she came clean about that. So it was in the picture. Yeah. And I had all my, as Angel said, I had all my hopes and dreams ahead of me. Why did you kill me? Which is so poignant. And, and did he respond to that in any way? She said, I know who you are. She said to him, do you love me? And he said, huh, you know I do. Then she said, then why did you kill me? You don't even know who you killed. You're looking at Crystal's picture as Angel. You killed her. She's gone. Why did you kill me? I had dreams. I had hopes. Why? And Belinda said to me, well, jokes didn't respond to that. And shortly after he went on the run, he fled the country and I handed my MySpace account over to, 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 over to Detective Wheeler. So that's what happened there. It just, she, he didn't respond. He obviously knew he'd been caught out. So hard work from a mother to have to do. I mean, it's emotional enough and it's, it's you know, something probably and hopefully a lot of us won't experience in our lives is losing a loved one to murder. But to then have to go and do that investigation by yourself as well. So eventually, I believe, you know, Salito got justice. I mean, we got, the family got justice for Crystal. Salito was brought in in 2020. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And he got... Um he was sentenced to 22 years in prison. Belinda felt it was quite lenient at the time, but she's was glad to see him behind bars where he belongs. Mm. And I'm sure proud to know that she had she kept her promise to her daughter and, and did all that. Yeah, after she went to her grave and, and, and said, we got him, we got him, babe, we got them, baby girl, yeah. So yeah, she kept her promise that she'd, she'd made from the, from the mm. moment she was killed. And it's not just mothers looking for justice for their daughters, which kind of leads us into um, people out there in these murder clubs are actually, you know, out there trying to solve cases for people they don't know, never met, have no connection with whatsoever. Just, I feel like it must be just some, something about their life must be just relevant to them and, you know, is intriguing and is kind of um, something that must be, I would assume, to get so involved in a case like this that you can just it reflects part of your own life in a way, whether there's something about them that, you know, you know somebody like that or whatever else it might be, you know. Um, so web sleuths, as you, as you mentioned at the start. Now, web sleuths is kind of the term that's used uh, for 
online citizen sleuths in general, but there is also a dedicated forum that was set up by um, Trisha Griffith uh, back in the day. And this, she had an interesting story as to how she ended up coming into setting this up. The way she got into true crime was, it's very terrifying. Yeah, she was at um, Fashion Place Mall um, in in Utah um, back in September 1974. She'd been, it was her first time she was um, 14 years old and it was her first time going to the mall by herself. So her mum had given her um, $30 to spend on clothes for starting school. It was a um, back to school kind of time. So mm. she's excited and she's, you know, walking, she's, she's got a lip gloss on and, a you know, a little tied up shirt and really feeling quite, quite the woman, you know, now. Yeah. Really excited. Um, and as she's walking through, she only just made it into one department store. Um, this man approaches her, terribly handsome, and she's boyfriend mad at the time. She's desperate, <laughs> friend, you know, she's, she said, I think she said I was boy crazy at the time. Aren't we all at that age? <laughs> yeah. So this man approaches her, um, sort of early 20s, absolutely gorgeous, dazzling smile, his sharp blue eyes, and he's dressed like smartly in, she's described it as all tan clothes. She thought maybe he was in the army or something like that. And he's asked her for um, directions to a shop, um, which wasn't in that shopping mall. It was in a different shopping mall. Um, it was ZCMI was the name of the name of the shop. So she looked at him. She said, "Oh, oh my gosh, you're in the wrong mall." But her heart's going because she's like thinking he, he might, you know, he might ask me out or something now, you know. And he's all like very friendly, and he's so, "Oh, silly me, I've got the wrong shopping mall." Um, I don't suppose you fancy coming to my car and and directing me there, like the drive. It's a you know a few a ten minute drive away from here. So alarm bells suddenly ring because it, it was the fact that he asked her to go to her car, um, mm. to his car, sorry. Um, so, yeah, this, is, this triggers something in her mind and she, she, she just, like, darts away. Like, fortunately sees her cousin, her older cousin, up ahead, who's, who's there shopping. Um, and she phones her brother who dropped her off at the mall and asked him to pick her up. Um, the brother came with a hammer wanted to go after <laughs> this guy you know um she just said there was something very very wrong about what you know and but she thought no more of it really after that apart from it it shook her up she wasn't interested in shopping after that she just wanted to go home mm. um, it wasn't until um a year later that she saw an article um in the press of the seven faces of ted bundy um that she recognised him because before then, um, about a month after she had this encounter, um, another young girl was abducted by Bundy in the same shopping mall. She had quite the the close call. I mean, you're 14, you're, you know, awkward and embarrassing just by your nature at that age, at least I was. I think, you know, to say no to an adult or to say no to somebody is hard. So she was probably very lucky that she's seen somebody she knew to just have that quick thinking because if not, he could have well convinced her to go to the car with him. That is really terrifying. And it was um, uh, two months later in, in November, in November um, Bundy was at, at the same shopping mall and he targeted a girl called Carol Durant. And she was 18 and she was also shopping alone. Um, he told her that somebody had tried to break into her car and he posed as a police officer. He said, like, you know, you know we'll have to go and investigate. Mm. He then bundled her into his own car um, and drove off with her. Um, she realised then, she, he said, well, we had to go to the police station. That's right, sorry. So she goes with him, think, still thinking he's a police officer. Um, and then... She realises something's wrong. She can smell alcohol in his breath. You know, why would a police officer be drinking? And then he pulled over and he turned to her and she she's tried to get out the passenger's door, but the handle's missing. Um, meanwhile, he handcuffs her. And then she she does manage to get out in the end and he, he chases her with a crowbar. Um, and fortunately, she managed to flag down the lift and, and get away. Um and he was later caught 
for this and drowned. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's Trisha definitely had a, a very lucky escape because she did call like um, it was either a police officer or a prosecutor who was quoted in the Seven Faces of Ted Bundy newspaper article that she read. And the only reason she recognised him, she didn't recognise him when Carol Durant, when that was in the newspapers, because he looked different. He was like bloated and had a beard. And so she didn't recognise him because he was able to change his appearance so much, Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. So, um, but when she saw these seven pictures, she recognised him straight away. And she called and, and and that guilt stayed with her for quite a long time, you know, like, you know, I should have said something at the time. I should have done something. But, you know, she didn't really think much of it. Mm. you know um so that's what really inspired her to become like an online detective so tell us then a little bit about like web sleuths and what it is and what the purpose of it is yeah so web sleuths are a community online where um citizen detectives come together to discuss cold cases and offer up evidence and you know have this conversation about and you know uh, yes it's mainly cold cases on missing people, um, unidentified bodies. Um, and they, yeah, they all gather together. There's like some over 200,000 members, I think now. And uh, since Trisha took it over in 2004, they have a very strict, the strict rules. It's carefully moderated. There's no naming and shaming. Mm-hmm. Um, no, like, you know, and no, you know, no pointing the finger out in someone as a, as a murderer, unless the police have, you know, put that information out there. Mm-hmm. So how does it work then for the sleuth? So I, let's say I want to go on this website. I'm like, do you know what? I fancy doing a bit of detective work. Put it, I love puzzles. I want to just go on this and see what I can do to help. Um, how would one get involved with with being on web sleuths? Um, you, do, you have to um, become a member. And then that has to be like, um, they have to, make sure you're, you know, you're, you're vetted and, um, and yeah, pretty much anyone can, can join. So it is quite a serious, in a way, it is kind of very, a very um, serious forum to do with. I just even looking at the likes of Reddit and um, Facebook groups, is, uh, for every, you know, new case that pops up, there's, there's nearly a Facebook group where things are just going rogue, very rogue, very fast. Um, and, you know, we often see police especially in the States, you know, it doesn't really, not that I don't really see it happening here because of the fact that um, we just don't have as much information to hand as they do over there. Um, You know, we can't access records the way they can. And I suppose, you know, you do have police coming out saying, don't be doing side by sides, you're jeopardising the case. There's this whole different, I guess, mentality or, or maybe view of sleuthing in the US than there is here. Um, But yeah, so web sleuths, I mean, the website itself they have helped bring people to justice lots of people to justice they've solved lots and lots of cases one thing that stuck out to me in particular was the case of Abraham Shakespeare where they had the actual murderer um, who has been convicted since 100% and this was the first time uh, so the murderer was uh, you know, engaging with the forum and it was the first time Trisha was like, I'm breaking my own rule here and I'm going to say this woman is the killer. She just had a feeling and she was right. So what was the what was the story with Abraham Shakespeare? Yeah, he he disappeared. He, he won all this money on the lottery um, and the forum were, di- were discussing the, the whole case. Um, and then they became suspicious of a, a, a regular poster in the thread. Her name was Doris D.D. Moore, which is the name she went by. And she'd befriended Abraham and claimed to be like working on a book about his rags to riches story um, and said like, you know, people have been taking advantage of you. Let me let me tell your story for you. So she became very close to him. And she, she then claimed that she was looking after all his lottery winning assets, um, including his million dollar mansion in Florida. Um, she, she said she'd become his financial advisor, so to speak. Um, and she, But when she started posting on web sleuths, she said that they'd become best friends. Um, and she said she was sick of like him getting attention from gold diggers, was, was what she said. Um, and she said that he, he had just disappeared. This is after he, after he disappeared when she joined web sleuths. So Trisha was like instantly wary of more. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she said... Um, 
because she'd initially posted under her real name, Moore. Um, she said she was like a flashy woman. He was a close friend of, of Abraham. Um, she said she'd helped him get out of town, and granted her, and he's granted her power of attorney for his affairs. She said, I'm taking care of his money. But as the evidence that, um, stacked up against Moore, uh, one member managed to, one member of Webster's managed to get her bank records. Um, and then Trisha got a private email from Moore um, who, who then denied it was her. She said, no, that's not me. Um, she said, somebody else is using my account, surely. You know, someone's... Of had- course. She just happened to have a, she just happened to have a Web Sleuths account, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, so Trisha then replied to the, the private email. She said, um, this is what she said. Well, I've got to, got to tell you, somebody must have broken into your house and used your computer because the IP address on this email matches the IP address of DD Moore postings. Wow. So, um, yeah, so then she said, um, you know, um, I, I made a rare exception against my rules of no naming or shaming and posted one sentence on web sleeves, um, which said, D.D. Moore killed him, in brackets, Abraham. Um, yeah, so, that, yeah, and then um, she this was, was handed on to police and, and Moore was convicted. She, well, how did she, how did Moore react to that, or did she? Yeah, she did. Um, <laughs> she started posting again and sort of contesting every piece of incriminating evidence. Uh, she went on to, compla- to to claim that a computer had been hacked uh, as before, um, but it just like confirmed their suspicions even more, you know, this reaction. So her Abraham's body was later found in her boyfriend's back, back, back garden, is that right? Um, and they found that he had been shot in the chest and he'd been buried under a new building that that the boyfriend had constructed. And she was then convicted of first-degree murder, murder and sentenced to life without parole. Like, it's incredible how that, that was all solved, not only because of the web suits, but because, you know, it's given this person, uh, you know, a way to out themselves. But one of the other stories, I guess, from web suits that's going to stick out, I guess, when, you know, the the, the case of John Bonet Ramsey is one that sleuths up across the globe, look at, um, and it's one of those ones where, you know, I'm the same. I love just looking at all the evidence and trying to make it fit and trying to, everyone has a theory on what happened and everyone has that one piece of evidence that, you know, breaks the story or makes the story for you. And for me, one of them is actually a piece of evidence that came around because of web sleuths. It is the, um, a forensic handwriting expert who was, had a, a, um, an account analysed the letter that, if you if you know the case, the the letter that Patsy Ramsey, who is John Bonet's mother, um, she, not the letter that she wrote. Well, you know, maybe she did, but the letter that was left uh, by this so called kidnapper, um, the forensic handwriting expert compared it to Patsy Ramsey's writing and said this is the same piece of paper, which or this is the same handwriting, same person, which is incredibly interesting. So they're not just solving them they really are moving on cases that have you know that have been stuck cold for years that's the cre- incredible thing about um groups like web sleeves is that it's you know you've got people from all walks of life you know from from the handwriting experts to former nurses or former detectives um you, your everyday office worker that likes to do this after work yes yeah, it's, it's a good mix of you know people bring all different kinds of expertise to the table Mm-hmm. That's why it works quite well because um, they they seem to work well together and they congratulate one another when they, you know, or someone you know might think of something that someone else hasn't thought of and and they're able to piece together, you know, you know bits of evidence which is which is incredible really. Mm-hmm. And one of the other ones that I want to talk to you about is probably one of the biggest cases probably of the last decade, um, I would say, um, coming from the United States, it's the case of the Golden State Killer. Now, we won't go into the whole story because we had Paul Holes on the podcast about maybe about 50 episodes ago and he told the story of the Golden State Killer. So do go back and listen to that. Um, so, But I do want to go into, I guess, before he got, he before he kind of got that evidence that solved that case, there were two citizen sleuths who worked like, 
dogs on it, to be honest. They really, really worked hard on it. And they got their hands on something that I'm sure, you know, everyone who was obsessed with a case would love to get their hands on is like the main files. They called it the mother load. How the hell did they get their hands on all of the files from the case? Well, it was um, due to, um, so Paul Haynes um, was the citizen detective who I interviewed for the book. And he worked with the late Michelle McNamara, um, who was obsessed with the with the case. Um, she had really good detective contacts. So I think it was through one of her contacts that she managed to get them in there. So um, so they went to Orange County Sheriff Department in um, two SUVs, um, went in and her contacts showed them into the into the evidence room where all these files were held. Um, it's the Eron's evidence room, which, um, as you know, Eron's was um, East Area Rapist, um, original Night Stalker, like anagram of that. So, um, so they, yeah, they they went in and um, they managed to get thirty five boxes and two bins, paperwork, evidence, all pertaining to the Golden State Killer case, and they put them on dollies and wheeled them out. <laughs> She was like, Michelle McNamara was obviously extremely trusted by the detectives who obviously led her into that room because, you know, imagine you were just walking up and saying, hello, can I have a big box of files on the biggest unsolved serial killer case in the, in the state? Um, not just anyone can do that, right? No, and that's what Paul Haynes was saying. He was, he was like quite dubious, you know, because she said um, they called it a heist. We're going on a heist, you know. Um, that's what Michelle had dubbed it. Um, and he was like, well, police, like law enforcement don't just hand over files to members of the public, do they? And so he was exactly. quite astonished that they actually got away with it. Um, but equally found it quite exciting, the buzz of it all. You know, he said it was like a Ocean's Eleven style. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, over here, like, it just wouldn't happen at all, you know. No, not at all. You wouldn't get a look in. So they went in, they, they stole all these files. What did they do with them? They borrowed them. <laughs> borrowed them. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. So they they took them. They took them back to Michelle's house, um, and she had a playroom for her daughter that become her sort of investigation hub. So the daughter's playroom um, was now full of all these boxes, and Paul took some away to his place. And you know, very painstakingly, they they sifted through all this information, looking for evidence that had been missed by police years ago. Mm. And what did they find? They came across, I think, a, you know, names would crop up, um, but ultimately they didn't find, didn't find any anything that would lead to um, the, the the killer himself. But so I think it was Michelle McNamara herself who um, had the idea that if they put the Golden State Killer's DNA into GEDmatch, which is like a, an American database, DNA database, um, that matches up with, I guess, it's people who donate their own um, their own DNA. And it's from, um, I know the laws have obviously changed a lot since then, I think, but it's people who have uploaded DNA to like Ancestry.com, et cetera, et cetera, to try and find their family. So this idea that Michelle had ultimately did, turn out to be how the killer was caught. Um, again, that's something we go over in the Paul Holes episode. Basically, he explains how they had, you know, they had narrowed it down, they got the DNA, they uploaded it, they found out who it was. Michelle, sadly, wasn't around for that. Mm-hmm. I know, and I don't think she got the recognition she deserved for that. Um, you know, as Paul said, um, Paul Haynes, he said that, you know, she shone the light on it. She did all the work, you know, years and years. Um, she came up with the idea and then all of a sudden it's, um, uh, no, she didn't really do much, you know, was the attitude of some law enforcement, you know, not all. So she had written this, they had a book as well before she died and I believe Paul Haynes and another journalist finished it off for her. Yeah, yeah, they, they finished the last last chapters. He said it was about um, three quarters of the way finished when they took it on. It was, it was very hard on... Paul Haynes, because they they became, he said that she became like a mother figure to him. Mm. She called him the kid. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they're very close working relationship. And, you know, um, obviously disappointing not to have got that name themselves, obviously. But they, you know, certainly did a lot for that case. 
Incredibly. She, she, she absolutely did. And one more, I suppose, before we let you go is kind of what happens when all of this goes wrong? We've talked about in these groups where things go a bit haywire and, you know, um, pictures of people that aren't killers are posted. And I'm sure that has a huge effect on their family because, you know, it's the internet and something's out there. It's out there forever. When sleuthing goes wrong, what can happen? I think one of the most, I think, shocking stories of all is something that, you know, those of us who kind of knew the Eliza Lamb story, I myself knew the story very well before the Netflix series came out. But I didn't realise that these sleuths had found... um, a, a, a potential suspect and that they had really done this pylon and kind of ruined this guy's life. So tell us, can you tell us a little bit about, first of all, Eliza Lam, who she was and what happened to her? She's a, a 21-year-old student from Vancouver and she travelled to America um, to embark on a long-planned solo trip up the Californian coast. Um, so she decided to check into the Cecil Hotel, which is near um, the crime-ridden Skid Row area in downtown Los Angeles. She didn't seem to be aware of the hotel's history. Um, it was known for um, killers, for there'd been loads of deaths there. Um, prostitutes, you know, sex workers would, would use this hotel. Right? I believe Richard Ramirez stayed there, the, 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 the Night Stalker, definitely more as well. Yeah, his, his blooded clothes were apparently found outside in the bin um, outside mm-hmm. the hotel. Um, so she checks in. Um, she, I mean, Eliza suffered from bipolar disorder, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, she'd been known sometimes not to take her medication. But suddenly she vanished from the hotel and she'd left her luggage and ID and medication behind in a room. So police and sniffer dogs were called in and they searched the hotel top to bottom and no sign of her. Um, and with no leads to work with, the um, LAPD um, released some footage, uh, the last known sighting of Eliza. And she was in an elevator, um, sort of acting a bit strangely. She was like looking, you know, sort of outside and sort of doing this um, bizarre square dance and appeared to be motioning at someone outside the elevator down the corridor. And she went back into the to the elevator and she starts erratically jabbing all these buttons um, and went out into the hall again. And then the last frame is of her turning her hands in the air as if that's when she was like um, gesturing towards somebody down the corridor. And then she goes out of view and the elevator door shut. So the police released this footage in the hope that it might, you know, spark something in someone's mind about, you know, um, her last sighting. Um, and the, the video went viral. And so, of course, all the armchair detectives have, you know, swamped um, the internet um, with their thoughts on the footage. And they started posting opinions on Reddit um, and uploaded uh, videos to YouTube and scrutinising Eliza's behaviour. They um, Some suggested that she was playing a Korean elevator game, which is a ritual of pressing the lift's buttons in a certain order to reach another dimension. Um, there was all kinds of theories. Um, they thought that maybe she'd fallen prey to some evil spirits haunting the building or something like that. Um, some thought that um, the video had been edited by um, as a cover-up by a police or the hotel. Um, she was, was she fleeing a pursuer, they thought, because her foot twisted at one point in the video. Um, And others thought that because of the hotel's history that she'd fallen prey to some evil spirit who was haunting the building. Um, But six days after this video went viral, um, a maintenance worker at the hotel uh, unfortunately found Eliza's naked body. And she was floating inside one of the 4,000 gallon cisterns on top of the Cecil Hotel. Um, He'd gone to check the tanks after guests complained that the running water had turned brown and was, and was tasting foul. Um, Eliza's death was was ruled um, an accident by the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office. Um, they felt that mental illness was a contributing factor, but again, this this got the the, the sleuths didn't didn't believe this. Um, she like Eliza had suffered 
hallucinations in the past and forgotten to take medication. Um, but, you know, uh, the sleuth still didn't think it was as simple as that. Um, mm. And also the, um, the hotel staff said that the tank was difficult to reach. It was, um, could only be accessed by a 10, 10 foot ladder. Um, and it had a nine kilogram lid on top of the tank. And when the maintenance worker found her, the lid was open. So theorists are believing, you know, how could she was only like a slim, small girl. So they didn't think it was possible that she could climb up and lift that lid herself and, and jump in the tank. So, you know, what's happened to Eliza? Um, they believe someone else is, is involved in this. So this, um, these theories, I begin to mushroom online and um, they found out that there'd been an outbreak of tuberculosis in Skid Row at the time of Eliza's death and this like um, roused Redditor's suspicions because they learned that the strain of the disease was named Lamb Eliza. It's um, an abbreviation. Very coincidental. Yeah. Um, don't ask me to pronounce that. <laughs> um, and yeah, so like, the, yeah, the, uh, they, they suggested that Eliza was a test subject for a new tuberculosis drug and had, like experienced some wild side effects from the medication. Or maybe she was a human biological weapon who had been sent to LA to spread, spread the disease. That's what people were theor theorizing online. Um, then they started turning to like movies for clues and proposing Eliza was a victim of a copycat killer inspired by the supernatural horror film Dark Water. Um, in this film, like a girl's body is found in a tank on, on top of an apartment building. But then um, they became obsessed when, um, or some, some armchair detectives became obsessed when they found a video um, which was made by a Mexican metal band artist known as Morbid. His real name was Pablo Vergara. Mm. This, this, this video he made was of him inside a room at the Cecil Hotel. And it was a teaser for his latest music video. Um, it was a song called Died in Pain. And the lyrics referenced a woman drowning in water. So he'd morbid had uploaded the video to his YouTube channel um, a few days after Eliza's body was discovered. And it seemed too coincidental for the sleuth, um, you know, why, what, what was he doing there at that time? And, you know, he seemed to be interested in serial killers. Some of his videos um, had images of Ted Bundy, um, Black Dahlia murder victim, Elizabeth Short, um, seen in the, in the backdrop, like um, one of his videos. Um, so very, very mini, very mini satanic panic kind of going on. This is what we've seen with, the, we've seen with many cases beyond before, um, West Memphis 3, for example, um, where people take these, you know, characteristics of somebody's life and decide that that makes them a killer. Yeah, absolutely. So they began to, uh, you know, just, and, and also the, the video with Elizabeth Shorten, she was reportedly last seen at the Cecil Hotel before she died in 1947. So that was another element that mm. made them think, oh, that, you know, he must be responsible. Um, they began to spread these presumptions online. And then a few went as far as to publicly name Morbid a killer. Um, they attacked his social media accounts and got his music deleted from YouTube. They circulated his photograph and they even tipped off a, a news station, which then named him as an official suspect. That was in Taiwan. Um, you know, and they, if they'd looked into this more carefully, they would have known that... Um, Morbid filmed his film um, at the Cecil Hotel a year before. So he, he was in Mexico at the time of Eliza's disappearance and death. So he, how could he have possibly have been involved? Um, so it was one of these cases probably of people wanting to solve this so badly that they were kind of skewing the evidence to fit their own narrative. And it, I mean, it wrecked his life. If you've seen the, the Netflix um, episode where... He talks about he got death threats. He had to stop doing his music, and it, yeah, it was um, cyberbullying. You know, and it, it really did did affect him. 
Hugely. And one of the things, I guess, kind of bringing it back to, you know, obviously this kind of ruled, ruined his life. And, and and this is why, you know, this obviously happened on forums that wasn't web sleuths, you know, because there are these strict rules in place and there's people that work to monitor these all the time. And that's not to say that these there's not these rules in Facebook groups, because there definitely are Facebook groups that I have seen with strict rules and Reddit threads with strict rules, but it's not always adhered to... The, the internet can be the Wild West sometimes. But one of the things that I think Trisha said about morbid really kind of stuck with me. It's that, you know, her she has those rules to stop the community of, of people who really do this amazing work from having a bad name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And she was appalled, you know, that firstly that he was targeted in in this manner, but also that um, in the documentary, um, they they labelled some of these sleuths as web sleuths, which is obviously the name of um, her website. Um, So they came after web sleuths and started accusing them and it was nothing to do with them, you know. she said that, you know, they, they thought it was web sleuths and it's trademarked by Trisha. Um, mm-hmm. so because it had been used as web sleuths, say, um, as one word instead of web and then sleuths. Um, they attacked her. So she, yeah, she was um that that really riled her. Um and she had to put, you know, she she made it clear that it was nothing to do with her her group. Um she even wrote to Netflix as well. <laughs> Nicholas Stowe, who has written an incredible book all about the different murder clubs that go on in real life, you know, um, everything from mothers and parents looking for justice to people just trying to help out. And I really think that it brings together this idea when you kind of take away an investigation and the police and you take away that blue or that kind of red tape, you kind of really see at the end of the day, the heart of it all, it's community and it's it's empathy for one another um, and sympathy as well. So Nicholas Joe, your book, The Real Life Murder Clubs, is out on the 24th of November. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. And why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.